Howdy, y'all. Great, greetings, beloved. We are going to be in uh, John 1, beginning in verse 35 to 42. Um, I'll just say that it's providential that it's a small crowd tonight because we're going to be speaking about God working in uh, small things today. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to read for us, um, beginning in verse 35. Um, this is the ESV. The next, day, John, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word this evening. It is a feast before us. God, we utterly do not deserve for you to speak to us at all. You are holy and righteous and absolute, and if you dealt with us according to our transgressions, you would be infinite blackness forever, for we could never pierce the veil. We would be lost And instead you came down as a little baby and you saved a people and they're called by your name. And we are the uh, hundredth generation of those people, Lord, that the sound doctrine which you implanted within your apostles is here today in this room because we are opening their writings and we are reading it. And we pray that the reading of your word, as your word promises, would this evening not come back void. I pray that the hearts of the fathers would be turned towards their children. I pray that you would bind up the broken, wounded, and hurting, Lord. I pray that you would encourage those who are discouraged, O Lord. I pray that those who are depressed and anxious would find peace, comfort, and solace for their souls. I pray for those who are hypocrites, that they would be convicted of their hypocrisy and turn to you in faith, for the the hypocrite is saved in the same exact way as the sinner is. Lord, may you open our eyes this evening to peer the wondrous mysteries of your word, to glory in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, and after that, rising again, defeating death, and vindicating his Father, Lord. We thank you. Please help this foolish speaker this evening who stammers through his words to give a message that is good for these people, that blesses them and glorifies your name. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. So, as a brief recap, um, we've been going through the book of John, and uh, the first quarter of the book of John, as I said last time, is really laying out the theology of what each interaction Jesus is demonstrating 
when he's interacting with his people. Um, we are always supposed to be interpreting every single um, historical account, not through our own perspective, not through our own ideas about what this text means to me. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of what does God say first and bringing what God says first to the text in order to understand it. And so John, knowing that his audience is, is going to be a mix of Jews and Gentiles, reminds us and teaches us that um, Jesus is eternal. He's existed forever. He is, in fact, God, who is co-equal with the Father. That there was nothing that was made that was made except through him. That all life is in Jesus Christ. That this this Jesus, who is God, didn't remain in heaven, but came down, and he came down born of a virgin, as was prophesied of old, and uh, it was not to only his people called the Israelites to receive him, but he came down to save a vast multitude of people of all tongues, tribes, and nations. And those people who were most acquainted with his text, who should have been most aware of who this Messiah was supposed to be, what he was supposed to look like, and what he was supposed to do and fulfill, were utterly, completely, wholly, and totally blind to who he was. They did not know him. And that's because, as we see in 1 John 1, or sorry, John 1, 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so tonight in our text, what we're going to see is what does this being born of God often look like? How does it work? How does it function? Um, you know, when I preached last time, I preached on the interaction of the Pharisees, who was that people group who should have known John or Jesus and didn't. Um, they weren't aware of who this Messiah was. And so they come to John and they criticize him for doing what he's doing. They believed that he was an interloper in their religious territory and thought he did not have the credentials he needed to be doing what he was doing. Those Pharisees wanted to keep their stranglehold on the truth firm and tight. Religion is as equally manipulatable to control the masses as anything else. They didn't want a man coming to all the peoples preaching free forgiveness of sins and repentance. All of a sudden you're going to have a bunch of people thinking for themselves what God wants for them in their lives instead of a top-down hierarchy like Every other single religion besides the Christian faith basically has. Is there's a class of people who are above the class of followers and the class above the people tell the people who are followers what God wants. And those people who are above them have no idea. It's just a bunch of made up convoluted rules. So they didn't want this John coming in onto their territory to interlope. But John knowing his call 
knowing that he was prophesied about prior to his birth, because an angel came down and spoke to his father, who said, and the angel said to his father that your son is going to be a prophet, and he's going to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, and he's going to be the voice in the wilderness saying, make straight the way of the Lord. So he knows this calling from his father. His father did his job by telling him what you're supposed to do. This is your identity Follow it. This is what God says. Do that. I'm your father. I know better than you. I am sure Zacchaeus, who was a faithful man, read the book of Proverbs and knew how important it was to instill good teaching into his children. Because when we read that, we're not only supposed to be the child who receives the teaching of God through the Proverbs, we're also supposed to recognize how important it is the role of fatherhood and parenthood in a child's life because it sets them in a direction that they go and they run with it as hard as they can sometimes. And that's what John did. He ran with it. He didn't, he didn't look back one single time. He said, an angel came to you before I was born? I mean, that's not a normal thing. Even back then, it's not like angels were going around and, and telling people things consistently. This was an anomaly. It was a miracle. And it was something that pointed John in the direction that he was supposed to go. And so he has this calling. He knows what he's supposed to do. But he has a much broader, wider vision for the kingdom of God than the religious Hebrews of the day. He preached to anyone and everyone who came near to him about this kingdom. This coming kingdom that was going to bring the Messiah, who was going to be the winnowing fork to, uh, to sift the chaff so that that which is burned and useless would go away and that which had substance would remain. But even this man of God who has a, a fire and a passion for what, what God would have him do, who knew his calling... He was not exempt from discouragement. It, it just so happens that on the day, or after the day that the Pharisees come to him to critique him, to criticize him, to tell him basically what you're doing is wrong, to get him to question what he's doing, it's, it's just that next day that Jesus comes. I want you to think about that. What an encouraging encouraging example from our Lord. How many of you who have here have been discouraged in your walk? Maybe even lately. After living for the Lord day after day and speaking his name to those whom you can, can you not feel the difficulty of waiting on God to move sometimes? You keep speaking to the same people, praying for the same people, asking for the same things, and sometimes it just seems like the gates of heaven are locked tight. I feel that sometimes. And it's easy to become despairing in a fallen world. Imagine how John must have felt. If, if, if God didn't want to give John time to contemplate, he would have came that self-same day. He came the next day. He wanted John to sleep on it. You know, he, John had been dunking people in the water of the Jordan for quite some time, eating bugs, wearing camel's fur, and after all this work he's doing, the people who ought to be most on his side are the ones who are coming, criticizing him, discouraging him from doing the genuine work of God. 
Although John is a genuine prophet, we know that prophets are not exempt from extreme bouts of depression, sadness, sorrow, hurt, discouragement. That means you too, body. You are not exempt from sorrow and misery and hurt. It's a part of our walk. Just as Pastor Allen has been teaching us in Sunday school, you can be in the midst of the worst season in your life, but that does not mean that you are not exactly where God wants you to be. Job was not outside of God's will in his suffering. The whole lesson of the book of Job is that you are in the midst of the will of God when you are suffering and remaining faithful. That means that even the strongest in faith among us can suffer for a while because of the sin of unbelief. Unbelief is that most abhorrent and wretched sin that plagues every single one of us. To believe that God will not do what he says to do is to defy God to his face. And to disbelieve what he says because you feel a certain way. And yet we cry out, God, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, just imagine John's prayer to God in his heart that night. Lord, I am pouring myself out every single day for your glory. You had set me aside from before my birth for your namesake. I have honored that commitment. I have listened to the wisdom of my father. Your word has said, go to the wilderness, and here I am in the wilderness, and God, your own people, reject me as a prophet. Are you coming, O Lord, or am I going to be proven to be a liar? Are you going to be proven to be a liar, is that question. Even though John was a man of great faith who was obedient to the will of God, we know because he had a propensity to doubt. In Luke 7, 19, he sends messengers to Jesus while being imprisoned by Herod, asking if Jesus really is the one who has been sent of God. You don't ask someone if they're really who they say they are unless you have a little bit of doubt in your mind because of what's going on. This lesser trial on John's faith likely made that later trial more bearable. And by no means am I saying that, that if Jesus didn't show up on that day, John was going to throw, throw the ministry off. It was done. These guys criticized me. I can't do this anymore. By no means, John was going to continue doing what he was doing, regardless if Jesus showed up on that day. But Jesus did. He did. That's the thing is that you keep going regardless of whether or not Jesus is going to give you what you want because you know that God is greater than you and he has all authority and all goodness and because even if he had either one of those things, you should keep doing what he says. But God in his loving kindness does meet us in our weakness and our hurt and our sin. And if there was anyone who could have come to John with a valid criticism, it would have been Jesus. If there was anyone who could have come to John and said, Brother, I really think you shouldn't have baptized that one. I mean, he's a murderer. I mean, come on. Jesus didn't say anything like that. He said, baptize me in order for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John, knowing his insufficiency, probably thinking of all the million and one things where he failed in this ministry, he goes, I should be baptizing you. 
And Jesus says, no, we have to fulfill all righteousness. It, it's, it's not like uh, this God is indifferent or uncaring. He cares. He's like a shepherd who wants to pasture his sheep. So don't lose heart. I know the days can be hard, difficult, trying. And you genuinely wonder where God is in the midst of it. Or you just maybe don't even care anymore. You're just a Christian and you go to church and that's what you do. You're not even thinking about where God is anymore. You just practice. Maybe your faith is diminished or maybe you never even really had it. And here you are. I encourage you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You must be born again. You must be born again. Children, hear this. You must be born again. You cannot come to heaven unless you have been born again from above. Because the Lord honors faithfulness to him. How is faithfulness tested in service to him except those things that become either difficult or boring in service to him? Those who fall off when things get difficult or boring never really were following the Lord to begin with. To open your mouth and speak of the Lord no matter who tells you to shut up, says you're crazy, openly resents you, and speaks bad about you proves that Jesus truly is in your heart. To maintain hope and peace even though you may be on the brink of despair proves without a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit is within you. And even when you do fall into that despair, believing that God's going to pull you out of the pit doubly proves it. Because there are many people who fall into that pit of despair and just stop believing. Not that they had true faith, but they just stop trying to pretend. Just as, And to <clears throat> suffer for the sake of God and his glory is exactly what the church demonstrates for us time and time. It's what Jesus demonstrated for us. I mean, he came down, and he didn't come down and get a mansion and live a beautiful, wonderful, opulent life, even though he could have. He came down and lived the life of a homeless man. And then he was crucified by his own family. I mean, I don't know if there's any other example that I could think of that, that is going to prove to us Christians that you will have trouble in this life. But take heart. He who is in you has overcome the world. And just as it was in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, verse 41, where the apostles rejoiced for the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Count it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, because this brings God much glory. And nobody likes to suffer. It's why we have to be commanded against, or against grumbling in the midst of suffering in the book of James. Rejoice, count it all joy, my brothers. That's an imperative. You have to do this. It's not a suggestion. It is an encouragement. But sometimes when you're talking to someone who's very depressed, telling them to count it all joy, they're going to be thinking, how? <laughs> how? Um, but you do. And you, you learn how to submit those things in your heart over to the Lord. The apostles didn't like to be thrown into prison, but they viewed it as a means for God to demonstrate his glory and power. And he does every time. Just be patient. Wait. It may not be in this life, 
but in the next life, you will have a vindicating moment just like John did. And think about this moment for a second. I brought it up briefly. This moment of encouragement for John was perfectly set up by his faithfulness. He was out there in the Jordan, preaching in the wilderness, setting up Jesus' baptism, which is the beginning of his public ministry, to demonstrate who this person is and what he does. He's God. What do we see in John or Genesis 1? Holy Spirit hovering over the faces of the waters in the, in the midst of the chaos. The Father there creating all things, using his word to speak the world into being. What do we see in Jesus' baptism? We see John in the wilderness, in the midst of chaos, in the, in the babbling of all these people. Jesus goes into the water and he comes up and what do we see? We see the Holy Spirit hovering over him. And we see the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the recreation of the world in Jesus' baptism. And it begins here. And listen, one day you're going to get as cosmically amazing encouragement as John did. I don't even know if John recognized all the things that Jesus was doing in his baptism. But he shifted the spiritual landscape forever. Not just for the sake of John's encouragement, but John was encouraged. And you too will be encouraged in Christ. And we see in our text today that John John the Baptist's faithfulness to this coming Messiah earned Jesus his first two disciples. As he spoke, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he finally recognized who Jesus was, so did two of his disciples for who he was, and we see the first two individuals of the church of God become converted. You know, uh, it was only two. John had been baptizing for a while, and a lot of people had been coming. And I don't know what the day looked like when Jesus was baptized there, but I can't imagine that it was an empty empty shore. It was probably packed. And only two people heard these words from John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And only two were born again. God is not a God of large beginnings all the time. Here we see that Jesus is a God of small beginnings and humble means. We learned a month ago or so in John 1.17 that Jesus' ministry is greater than Moses' ministry. Until the moment of Jesus' baptism, John and his followers were still under that lesser ministry of Moses, known as the ministry of condemnation. And in real time, John goes from saying, I do not know him, to saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Finally, after all of that preaching that John had been doing, now he had not only had his own ministry personally testified to and vindicated by the Lord of glory himself, but the greatest desire of his heart finally started to come to fruition. For what did it say in the previous verses? He must become greater, and I must become lesser. John did not want a lot of followers. I imagine he set out to the wilderness and just started preaching to the air. He just started preaching to all of creation, and God brought them. He didn't have a fancy activity engagement to bring people to the shores of the Jordan. He didn't have a beach day. He just preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at 
hand, and he is here, and he is now, and he is not only in the midst of them back then, but he is in the midst of you here, today, in this moment, right now. Do not ignore his calling upon your heart. You cannot. You may leave this place and die forever. That's true. Turn to him if you do not know him. But we see that this is John's greatest desire being fulfilled because he must become greater, I must become lesser. John's going to start losing followers. He's going to start losing followers. I mean, in our day and age of social media, television, and sports, how many of our idols on those things would be willing to lose their entire following for the sake of Jesus Christ? I don't know, there's maybe a few Christians out there, but not a lot of them. You know, in the, in, in the day and age of Instagram and, and YouTube, where they all beg you practically to subscribe and like and follow, it is inherent within us as image bearers of God to want to be followed. We want people behind us. We want a large crowd. Because a large crowd, what does a large crowd do? It makes you feel like what you're doing is right. Because... If I got enough people agreeing with me, surely we all can't be wrong. Just tell that to the Pharisees, because they were definitely wrong. The true preacher of the Bible has no desire to build a following for himself. He does not want a big church, if that's what his aim is. He wants to preach the gospel, and if God grants him a large church, he grants him a large church. The true preacher of the Bible does not care for personal esteem, for people to come to him and respect him and look up to him. He just says, I am a voice that God has blessed with a calling, and I am telling you now, here and today, what the truth is. So John doesn't care that his follower count goes down and Jesus goes up, because that's his aim in life. To make great the name of the Lord and hopefully raise up other men and women who will speak highly of this Lord. Is that not how we see the infant church of God grow in these verses? Andrew finds Jesus and immediately goes and tells his brother. We found him. He's here. I, mean, I can't emphasize. Like I can just imagine Andrew. This is Jesus. This is, the, this is the guy we've been talking about. This is, what we've been, this is the hope of the ages. He's here. He's right now. He, he, he's among us. You know, is that your disposition? Do you find the desire to tell others about this wonderful Savior irresistible and compelling? Or is it just your religion? Do you love to speak great things about God to your secular, secular friends and co-workers? Or do you mention only your church? Do you desperately long for the whole world to know this God and praise Him with all their hearts, minds, souls, and strength? Or do you give them a formula to slap a band-aid on their dead soul. Only Jesus has the power to save. And Jesus or, and Andrew tells Cephas about Jesus because Andrew wants Cephas to know the one who can save him. He, Andrew's not, look, I found the guy. I'm so important. He goes, we got to go to him because he has it. You know, Andrew, after spending this evening with the Lord of glory himself and seeing where he stayed, which was most likely a humble abode, um, some of the commentators I read uh, wrote that it was a cave in all likelihood, um, goes home to re recruit the, the chief apostle, Peter. 
You know, how many more souls would be converted if we all had that same evangelistic spirit that Andrew has here? How many souls are much more willing to hear the word of God in a private room with a good friend than they are hearing it from a preacher like myself or Alan or Randy? Um, Yes, you may not sound as composed or articulate as a person who gets paid to do these things, but maybe that's what your friend needs. Maybe you don't have it all figured out. Maybe they just need to hear you talk about this God whom you love. A humble soul willing to speak the best they can is a soul that pleases God, and you entrust the rest to him. You know, none of us preachers in this church get up here and are satisfied with the sound of our own voices. Just as John didn't care to hear himself and exalt himself, what we want for more than anything is for each of you to go to Christ yourself. You cannot live off of the words of a preacher on Sunday morning. You have to have not just a tentative, I acknowledge Jesus sometimes, maybe I'll say grace if I remember, relationship with Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your God. He's your best friend. He's your master. You're his slave. You go to him, and he tells you to jump, and you jump. But he does so much more than that, and he tells us so much more. And again, don't be discouraged if your work with people in the world is slow and small. How many thousands had come to John before Jesus decided to show up? And how many turned to Christ after his long ministry? Just two. God, the creator of everything good and wonderful, who is the master of all craft, the composer of the ages, the king of eternity, the one from whom, through whom, and to him are all things, is content with a small enterprise and dies with it, disintegrating. So don't worry about the outcome. Don't consider the opposition. Don't mind the obstacles. Trust in God and do what he tells you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for uh, your word again. Uh, God, I just pray that these people will be encouraged to know that you will console them one day, if not today. You will wipe away every single one of their tears. Uh, Lord, that you have promised in the book of Revelation. Um, Lord, you will have us in your presence, and every single one of these miseries in this life will not even have to be explained. We will just be washed in your radiant glory, and all of the things of this world, even our greatest grievances, will just melt like butter before the furnace of your wonderful glory. God, I I pray that you would continue to work in our lives, draw us closer to you, grant us a strong personal relationship with you, God, where we pray daily, where we seek out your will in your word, where we turn away from sin and we turn towards righteousness, Lord. And may these people be encouraged to follow after you, share the gospel everywhere they go,
Speak that kind word that they may be afraid to on behalf of your glory. Lord, thank you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.